our scripture this morning. <laughs> comes from James 2, verses 1 through 7. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? All right, two two minutes of bonus content. I'm not going to do this every week. I've done it a couple weeks. How many? Be honest. How many of you? No, I actually want you to raise your hand. How many of you have felt genuine emotional investment in a sport or a sporting event or a sports team of some sort? Come on, be honest. Okay. Okay, so this happens to be the greatest sporting weekend of all sports, um, at least in, for sure until 4.15 tonight when we, we play Duke. But, uh, but anyway, here's the thing. I want you to be honest about one more thing. How many of you have ever sat through a sermon or a song like Holy, Holy, Holy and felt not emotionally invested in it. Raise your hand, be honest. I'm raising both hands because, okay, so what's what's the deal? Why does it work like that? Uh, there, there's a lot of ways to answer that, but, but what I will tell you is this. When, when we sing what we just sang, and when you hear what you are about to hear, the reason sports exist, at least for those who have experienced emotional investment in sports. The reason they exist is to teach us the kinds of things that ought to be happening inside of us whenever we encounter the Word of God or the fellowship of the saints, the the things of God. And so where you've been able to experience this, like if you watched, was it St. Who are the Peacocks, the St. Peter's or something like that? Never even heard of them, and they're just beating everybody. It's pretty amazing. And, And you see their faces light up and there's just such neat gladness in this. And when you see that, that's meant to be a, a, a brief reflection on the kind of experience we're meant to have forever and ever and ever and ever in heaven with God and fellowship with him through Jesus Christ. So if you sing what we just sang and hear this passage read that we just heard read and hear it preached the way we're about to hear it preached, and it doesn't do that in you. Ask God to change your heart. (laughs) Ask him to. Ask him to tune you to the things that are really worth giving ourselves to in that way. Because this is that. All right, so that's the end of the bonus content. What would you do if some type of celebrity started attending Grace? You got to picture him. You didn't even know they were coming. You just walked through the back door and started coming to Grace Church. What if it were your athletic or musical or even theological hero? Would you treat them any differently than you treat the shabbier looking people among us or visitor from town to someone from 
up, up the street that just walks in? What if someone exceedingly wealthy or influential began attending our church? Can you picture yourself treating them any differently at all? In other words, are you ever tempted to show favoritism to someone or some group of people because of their position or prominence in this world? Well, evidently, at least some of James's readers were struggling with this, and James wanted to put a stop to it. Because James loved them and wanted them to love one another well, he commanded them, show no partiality. Those of you who hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, show no partiality. That's the main charge in this passage, and the rest just sort of unpacks that. To help his readers obey then, he shared six reasons. You think, well, I mean, I don't know. Don't murder, that sort of makes sense. You, you think, don't rape and pillage villages. I, I get I get that. But don't show partiality. That, that feels a little less intense. Well, to help him to understand why this is such a significant command that they obey, he gave them six reasons why they shouldn't do this. So that's where we're going this morning in the sermon. Show no partiality and six reasons why you shouldn't. Let's pray. God, open our eyes to behold the wonderful things of your law. Whatever amount we've ever been excited in sports or something else, God, help us to know that the excitement we get in your presence is meant to dwarf that. Whatever amount of anguish we felt when our team loses, the anguish we feel when we or the people around us dishonor you is meant to dwarf that. God, you made us to be people of deep emotional experiences, but deep emotional experiences tied to the true value and nature of the things we encounter. Thank you for sports. Thank you that they're part of your design as training tools, but they're not the real thing. You and your victory over death, that's the real thing through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us again to have our hearts tuned continually to that. We pray that in Jesus' name, and we pray that that would be the fruit of the sermon and the service and our interaction with one another after and always. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the main thrust of this passage is another of James's growing list of hard things that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to say to his readers. There had already been instruction, correction, exhortation, and rebuke. Some of what he wrote certainly would have come to his readers as helpful clarity, but some of it was sure to wound as well, to cut them. And, but all of it was done in love. To make sure his readers knew that, he says this over and over and over again. I actually counted but forgot the number. It's, some, it's many times in, in this letter where he says, my brothers, or my beloved brothers, twice in our passage, once in verse 1 and once in verse 5, he says, you are the people that I love, and that's why I'm writing to you, and that's why I'm writing this to you. Even if it's hard to hear, know that I say it in love. Well, I've mentioned this before in James because James has mentioned it before in James, and I'm going to mention it again in James because James is going to mention it again in James. But before we get to the main content of this particular passage, I want to draw your attention to, to something once again with a bit more thoroughness and clarity. I want to take you a little further up and a little further in 
as we consider the biblical place of love in the life of a Christian, especially among Christians, but also even to the world. So I'm going to give you a handful of passages, and here's my, my hope. I hope one of these, I think there's six or seven of these. I'm just going to read them for the most part, but I want you to grab on to one of these. They're all on love and the role of love in the life of a Christian. I want you to try to grab on to one of them to take with you throughout this week and to listen to the rest of this sermon through. All right, this is a command of love that James is giving that might not feel like love at first, but it is. And I just want you to have these passages as the backdrop. I want this to be the heart of our church because I think that's what God's word commands. So James knew that the most foundational love commandment of all had been spoken years earlier by Jesus, and that's this. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Similarly, Paul wrote, the whole law, all that God requires is fulfilled in one word, one saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Think about that for a minute. Grace, whatever else you do, it must be marked by love. Whatever you do in the world around you, it must be marked by love. Everything that God requires is tied to love for others. Jesus went a step further in proclaiming a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as, in the same way, was how do you love? What does it mean to love? You love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. In fact, by this, Jesus said, by loving other people the way that I've loved you, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Grace, one of the most significant marks of a true follower of Jesus is to is Jesus-like love flowing out of us to them. To the same point, but from another angle, John wrote, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Again, one of the surest ways to know that you are a true disciple of Jesus is the love you have for other Christians. Peter urged, above all, (laughs) above all, uh, uh, that means what you think it means, above everything else, keep loving one another earnestly, since love conquers a multitude of sins. You you may remember, we preached through 1 Peter a while ago, but you may remember that Peter's letter was written in a context very similar to that of James's, to scattered persecuted Christians of all the things he might have charged them with in their suffering and struggling and persecution, love rose to the top. Partly because, Peter wrote, our love for others is a means of sin-fighting grace. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Genuine love for God always produces genuine love for other Christians. And a great summary command Paul wrote, let all that you do, grace, everything, every piece of it, sitting right here right now, driving home, let all that you do be done in love. And finally, last one, recognizing the unparalleled significance of love for followers of Jesus, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, it is my prayer, 
my earnest prayer for you, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. When God sets his love upon us, grace, it always produces love. Love for God, love for the world, love for other Christians. Our world, and even the church, has gotten a lot of things wrong. A right understanding of love is near the top of that long list of things we get wrong all the time. Love is not, as many would have you believe, affirming whatever they want you to affirm about them. Love is not making sure that someone feels good about themselves, whatever it takes to do that. Love is not helping someone to feel special, no matter what. And love is not about making yourself feel good in the presence of someone else. Young ladies hear this. Oftentimes when guys say, I love you, what they mean is, I love the way you make me feel. That's selfish. Find a guy who loves differently than that. Okay, so here's the thing. How does that relate to this passage? God is love, Grace. God is love. And so whatever love is, it needs to conform to the very nature of God. If God is love and we are to love, it has to be rooted. Whatever it is that we're doing has to be rooted in the very nature of God. Specifically, real, genuine, biblically defined love in the sense of the passages I just read and then in the sense that James has it towards his readers It is this. This is the definition of love. If you've been here a while, you've heard this before. I want to say it again. It is the affectionate pursuit of that which is best for someone. Not necessarily what you think is best or what they think is best, but that which is truly best. Ultimately, that's God. God is what's best for everyone. But loving like like that means specific things under specific circumstances. How do we bring God to people? What does it mean to love somebody when God to, by bringing God to them in real life specific circumstances? Well, I read the last passage on love I read, I read last on purpose. Let me read it again though, just so you can hear it freshly. This is Philippians 1:9. Paul says to the Philippian church, "It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Okay, so here's here's the point. Loving like that means specific things in specific circumstances, and knowing what that is in any given circumstance requires knowledge and discernment. Grace, as I hope you know and firmly believe, God's word is the only reliable source of love, knowledge, and discernment. That is, in order to know what it looks like to love somebody, truly love someone in their specific circumstance, in order to know how to bring God to them where they are, whatever situation they're in, we cannot merely look inwardly to our own sense of things. We cannot merely look outwardly to someone else's sense of things. Rather, we must look upwardly to the word of God. Our passage for this morning is one such source of love wisdom. In it, we see one expression of love for hurting, lowly, and in many cases, poor and persecuted Christians. Okay, so you think of all all the passages where you see the love of God and the goodness of God, this might not be the one that comes first to your mind. But if your goal is to learn increasingly what love looks like in any given situation, this passage is a gift. Do you know anyone who is poor or anyone who's rich? Do you know anyone who's struggling to make ends meet or anyone who has more money than they should? or at least that they know what to do with to honor God, 
This is a passage that will teach you how to love them. It's a gift. So therefore, as we continue on in our text, please understand that as tough as it may have been to hear for some of James's readers, it is truly an expression of love. God's love to inspire James to share this, and then James's love for them to speak it to them. And in that, please give yourself in new ways to living entirely out of love yourself. So what I want you to do is I want you to think of someone in your life right now that most needs love, or at least it seems to you like they do. Maybe it's not related to them being poor. Maybe it's they're hurting, they're suffering or struggling, or maybe they're not. Maybe all they know is success, and that's blinded them from seeing their need for God. Maybe it's just a neighbor that's lonely. Maybe it's uh, someone you know that's shut in and, and can't get out of their house. Whatever it is, maybe it's a child who's gone wayward or a parent who's angry a lot. Whoever that is, whatever the situation is, commit yourself this week to learning what God's Word says about how to love them well. It's not up to you to decide. God's Word will share that with you. Find it. And in this case, especially rich and poor, how do you love people who know rich, richness and poverty? So, filled with love, filled with love, and having directed it at his readers, once again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James described for them, this is the heart of the sermon, James described for them what it meant to love well in the circumstances that God's providence had brought them to. What were their circumstances? Again, I hope you remember this, but in this context, the most important thing to note is that many or most of James's readers were in hard places. They would have been driven from their homes, jobs, and in some cases, their, their families. Some would have struggled even to find the basic necessities of life, like food and clothing and shelter. For those reasons, as you can imagine, I can imagine, it would have been tempting to give special treatment to the wealthier among them, to those who might help alleviate the suffering that committing themselves to following Jesus had brought upon them. That is why that is what James was most directly addressing. Does it make sense? Are you with me? It's, life's hard. They don't have any money. They don't have any friends in some cases. They, they don't know where their next meal is going to come from, perhaps. And here are some people in the church, in one way or another, that have a lot of money. And their temptation was to grovel, to flatter, to, to give them special places of honor. James says, knock it off in a holy spiritual way. Specifically, he called them to love one another by showing no partiality toward the rich. Our passage begins then with a clear command and a clear illustration. My brothers, and I'm going to skip a little bit in verse 1 for a reason. I'll come back to it. My brothers, here's the command, show no partiality. Skip ahead a little bit. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention, fawn over, make sure you introduce yourself, shake hands, look them in the eye. If you if you pay if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, Hey, you you sit here in this good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So the command is, show no partiality. 
There are rich people and poor people among you. Show no partiality. The word translated partiality is a really important word. In fact, it's one that the New Testament authors, by God's inspiration, made up. (laughs) The word didn't exist prior to the New Testament. It means literally receiving face, seeing face. The idea is that showing partiality or showing favoritism means judging a person based on their appearance or what they appear to offer, have to offer. Again, James's clear command is that Christian love does not receive or see face. Christians are not face seers. We don't look at the outside, at the appearance of a person in order to decide how to respond to them or treat them. We do not treat people according to what they look like or what they might offer us in our flesh. Christians, uh, Christian love is not based on someone's worth or what we imagine their worth to be. Again, it seems that in their trying circumstances, and probably under some specific circumstance, perhaps it was they were doing this at a worship service, or it might have been in a matter of church discipline. Some of James's readers were favoring the rich over the poor, and they're in failing to love them well, either the rich or the poor. They were not offering that which was best to one another. So instead of giving rich people more prominent positions or more attention, James's readers, God's people, should have remembered the teaching and example of Jesus. Jesus said this, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. They should have treated the parts of the body that we think less honorable with greater honor, as Paul instructed in 1 Corinthians. They should have heeded James's earlier words and let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, in the rich, in his humiliation. They were off in their understanding of whether they should love or not and what love looked like. All right, so I'm going to give you a real quick sneak peek into next week. The, the argument continues all the way to verse 13 for James. Uh, but all of next week is about this. Contrary to how some have twisted this kind of thing, James is not arguing for a flat morality where everything is equal, where, where Christians have no right to judge anyone based on anything in any sense. It is only to say that we must judge as God judges. We must judge by the right standard. That's all of next week. Come back next week and you're going to hear more about that. And the right standard is never the wealth or the appearance of a person. Does that make sense? You with me? So the point is that there's no sense in which we're allowed to discern or judge. It just means we have to do so by the right standard. And the right standard is never the wealth or appearance of a person. And so this is a good place to ask. I'm going to ask you. I asked it a little more generically at the beginning. I'm going to ask it a little more specifically now. What are some ways you are tempted to show partiality or favoritism? We all are. What are some ways you are more tempted to? Are you more likely to show honor to someone of worldly accomplishment than quiet godliness? Are you more likely to invite someone over that seems to have all things all together or someone who looks like they might actually need a meal and a friend? Are you more likely to compliment someone for some kind of earthly success or for some kind of Christian fruitfulness or faithfulness? Are you parents helping your kids look to those who live out their faith at cost to themselves or to those that the world looks upon with favor? James wanted to love his readers by helping them to love one another. And loving one another well, at least in this specific circumstance, meant something specific. 
a refusal to show partiality to the rich or the poor. Having stated in clearest possible terms what love looked like, show no partiality, James wanted to give them the reasons for this command, six of them. Let's, let's look at each. I'm going to just list them, and then I'm going to go through. Number one, because it is part of what it means not showing partiality. Don't show partiality because that is part of what it means to have faith in Jesus. It's tied to the very essence of our faith. Second, because the desire to do so comes only from evil thoughts. Third, because God does not show partiality. Fourth, it is dishonorable to lowly people. Fifth, it makes no sense. I like the kind of down-to-earth wisdom here. It makes no sense. And sixth, lastly, because those because those you are favoring, he, he said, are blaspheming God. Well, again, to help us grow in our impartiality and our willingness to obey James's command, let's consider each of these things quickly. Not showing partiality is part of what it means to have faith in Jesus. Don't show partiality because doing so is part of what it means to have faith in Jesus. This is the rock-solid foundation for the command. My brothers, show no partiality, and here's the key, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James wanted his readers to know that their faith in Jesus was the grounding for this command. Are you holding to faith in the Lord Jesus Grace? Are you? If so, you must not show partiality or favoritism to the rich. Is your hope in the Lord in the Lord of glory? If so, do not look upon the face of those whom you are called to love, but upon their hearts. Genuine faith, grace, always leads to impartiality, James says. God-honoring impartiality only comes from genuine faith. What this means, in case it's not already clear, is that following Jesus and treating people better because they have more to offer or worse because they have left less are incompatible with one another. Following Jesus and treating people better because they have more to offer or worse because they have less to offer are incompatible. You cannot be characterized by a lack of love in the form of favoritism and be living consistently with Christ's call on your life. His command is rooted in the very nature of faith in Jesus. Along with that, notice the title. It's the only place it happens in the Bible. This is the only place you see this title. Notice the title that James gave to Jesus. It's a long one, pretty pretty profound and magnificent. Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The exact significance of this isn't entirely certain, but it seems clear that James has more in mind than just the sum of the parts. Grace, Jesus is Lord. He is the ruler and king. He is Christ. He is the Messiah and Savior. He is the one to whom belongs all glory, his honor and praise. But more than simply throwing, smashing all these together in a title, more than offering simply a list of Jesus' attributes, James seems to be attempting to describe the indescribable majesty of the object of the faith of all Christians. Our faith is not in just some guy. Our faith is not in some great angelic being. Our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It's as if James was saying that given the fact that your faith to be a Christian is to claim to have faith in the one who is greater than you could ever imagine, 
given the fact that you have been accepted by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the glory of glories, and the Savior of Saviors, how could you possibly, you, you see this object of your faith, to have real faith is to have seen Jesus in this way. You, you claim to have seen Jesus in this way and trust in him. How could you possibly then look up or down to anyone to see the contrast between the Lord of glory and yourself is immeasurable. The, the distance between yourself and anyone else on earth is relatively minuscule. So how could you have seen the Lord of glory and look upon anyone else down or up? When you see yourself rightly in relation to Jesus, which is the essence of saving faith in Jesus, partiality isn't even possible. Like Jesus' parable of the debtors, you cannot understand the nature of your forgiveness and treat people according to their outward appearance or offering. And that leads right right directly to the next reason why James's readers must show no partiality. The desire to show partiality comes from evil thoughts. If seeing ourselves rightly in relation to Jesus is a critical component of saving faith, and if seeing ourselves rightly in relation to Jesus is therefore incompatible with showing partiality to others, the only place that partiality can come from then is something other than faith in Jesus. James wrote, it in fact comes from evil thoughts. Verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves, becoming judges with evil thoughts? What does that mean? Simply it means that the kind of partiality James has in mind is almost always comes from one of a, a, a small handful of sinful desires. So let me give you three. This isn't an exhaustive list, but just hear these. Sometimes the desire to show partiality to others comes from measuring ourselves horizontally instead of vertically. When we see ourselves in relation to other people, we will inevitably look down on those we deem beneath us, financially perhaps, or aesthetically, meaning whether they're pretty or pretty ugly, intellectually, athletically, and we'll look up to those we deem above us. And then we'll divvy out favoritism accordingly. That's evil. Sometimes, uh, differently, it comes from failure to trust in God. When our trust in God is weak, we'll look to others to provide. We'll look to others to provide for us and show favoritism to those who can. If our trust isn't in God for the things that we need, we're going to look to others who we think can give them to us and show favoritism to those who can. That's evil. Here's one more. Sometimes it comes from a failure to treasure Christ as supreme. If our desire, if our greatest desire in this world is something other than fellowship with Christ, we'll look to things outside of Christ to satisfy our desires and show favoritism to those who can give them to us and not give attention to those who can't. That too is evil. In short, the desire to show partiality does not come from faith in Jesus. Christian, you should not show partiality because it does not come from faith in Jesus. It comes from evil desires. Here's the third one. We must not show partiality because God does not show partiality. In Deuteronomy 10.17 we read, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial, shows no partiality, and takes no bribes. Most succinctly of all, Romans 2.11, Paul plainly and explicitly says, God shows no partiality. So, 
follow this chain, short and simple. Since love is rooted in the nature of God, God is love, which means love is rooted in his nature. It should be no surprise that since God shows no partiality, loving other people means refusing to show partiality ourselves. So think about this for a moment, Grace. Since God is not a face seer, he does not decide to set his love upon his people because of how we look or what we have to offer. We just, I just prayed earlier, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not as a, not of yourselves, not as a result of works. There's nothing in how you work on your face or your, your appearance, your clothing, your athletic ability, your money, your resources, your talents. There's nothing in that that impresses God. <clears throat> nothing. There is nothing in that that he didn't give you anyway, whatever it is. And there's nothing in that he can't do better than you. You think you can jump high? Challenge God to a jumping contest. See what happens. You think you can shoot a basketball well? You think you've earned some money? This doesn't sound all that impressive to us, but the way the Bible describes it is he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I mean, that's that's a lot of money, you know? You think you have something? Nothing you have wasn't given to you, and it all belongs to God anyway. Do you get that? Do you get that grace? Since love is rooted in God's nature, it should be no surprise that since God shows no partiality, loving people means that we refuse to show partiality ourselves. That's what James is getting at in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. To be as clear as possible, hear this. We must not show favoritism to others, deciding how to treat them based on their appearance or what they appear to be able to give us, because by doing so, we are acting contrary to the very nature of God. Further, by doing so, we are, in essence, asking God to judge us based on our appearance. That's a big deal. That never ends well, ever. If you judge other people, Based on their appearance, you are asking God to judge you based on yours. You don't want that. It always ends in tragedy. To state the same thing positively, we must not show favoritism to others because God is impartial and because we are God's people only because of his impartiality towards us. So at the same time, let's be clear on something else. The fact that God chose those who are poor is not to say that God has some kind of reverse favoritism Favoritism for those the world does not favor simply because the world doesn't favor them. That's not what he's saying. It is rather to say that God chooses those who know they need God. The first step in trusting in God and having real saving faith in God is knowing that you need to trust in God. By God's grace, the trying physical circumstances of the poor often help them through their physical need to see their spiritual need, while the comfortable circumstances of the rich often mask it. So we must not show partiality to others because we are called to love them. And loving them means giving them what is best. And what is best is God. And God does not show favoritism. So loving them means not showing favoritism ourselves. Here's the fourth one. We must not show partiality to the rich or to the poor because it dishonors the poor brothers and sisters, our poor brothers and sisters in Christ. That's verse 6. In having shown favoritism, James says, you have dishonored the poor man. Again, this is tied to the heart of the gospel. To dishonor Christians who are poor in this life because they are poor 
is to miss the gospel fact that the only riches that matter are being kept in heaven for everyone who loves God. The gospel is the good news, Grace. Write this down. Kids, you can get this. Whatever, I, if any of this has gone over your head, you can get this. The gospel is the good news that we are all equally poor in our sin and rich in grace in Christ. Christians understand what it means to be rich in terms that are different than non-Christians. It is in, incompatible with the great promise of the inheritance of the saints to treat Christians differently because of the amount of money they have in this life. Picture this. Imagine treating a friend. You know, kids, if you're young and you've got a friend who's walking around with a $100 bill in their pocket, you're thinking they're pretty cool. You want to kind of, I, I never had any money. I, probably because I never had a job or anything. But but <clears throat> during the school year, I mean, but, but I had a friend who did. His dad owned a grocery store, and he would work and bag stuff, and he always had money. And I would always go, it was called the Blue Streak, as a place where you could, like a restaurant, at lunch, because he would, he would always get me an ice cream cone if I did. Pretty lame. But imagine treating a friend with $100 in his pocket with special favor while looking down on another friend, because although there was no cash in his pocket, he had a a, a winning lottery ticket for $100 million. Far, far, far greater reward would be his. Imagine the silliness of looking down on the person with $100 million promised in the future and looking up to the person with $100 in their pocket right then. That's what Christians showing favoritism to the rich at the expense of the poor are doing. They are dishonoring the poor brother by missing their true far greater wealth in Jesus while wrongly esteeming the comparably minuscule wealth of those rich in the things of the world. You with me? This is good stuff if you want to love well. None of this is to say, of course, that we should fail to love people who are rich. It is to say, however, that loving them means helping them know that all the material wealth in the world can do nothing to alleviate their spiritual poverty. Faith in the grace of God through Jesus Christ alone can do that. So may may God grant us eyes to see. This is our prayer for this one. May God grant us eyes to see things as they truly are. Real wealth is real wealth, and real poverty is real poverty, in order that we might recognize true wealth and poverty when we see them and act accordingly. Two more, and they're short. The fifth reason James gives that we must not show partiality to the rich is because it just makes no sense. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and drag you into court? You're treating them buddy-buddy and kissing up to them, and but they're mocking you. They're, they're teasing you, and they're making you in your poverty worse in your poverty. Again, what, what was happening among James's readers is plain, even if it was foolish. Some of the poor were showing favoritism to the rich, even though the rich did nothing but bully them and take advantage of them. Rather than use their wealth to bless... Some of them, at least, were using it to make the poor poor. But rather than see things as they are, or as they were, the poor were falling over themselves to offer greater places of honor to their oppressors. It made no sense. It's, it's what all sin is, really. Every time we give in to sin, we're, we're choosing to follow the wicked one, the evil one who only wants our death, but has a good marketing strategy. This is a big deal. I got some junior hires in here. I don't know if homeschooled junior high is the same way, but... This is a big deal for the kids at my junior high. So many of the younger, less popular kids would treat the older and more popular kids extra kindly, 
even though they were doing nothing but picking on them, mocking them, taking advantage of them. Unfortunately, at different times in my life, I was on both ends of the spectrum. Why in the world would we look up to people who show us nothing but contempt? That's what they were doing. It makes no sense. Why should you not show partiality? It makes no sense. Last one. James wanted his readers to know that showing partiality was wrong because beyond being simply irrational, it also meant participating in blasphemy. The rich were not merely taking advantage of the poor, which was bad enough. They were also mocking God while doing so. Verse 7. And are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Again, what? The guy who's become my favorite commentator wrote this. Wicked, rich men, above all others, are most prone to blasphemy. Because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud, says Ezekiel 28.5. Grace, here's, here's the heart of this. He says, riches breed pride, and pride ends in atheism. It's one bad thing to flatter those who dishonor you. It's something else entirely, entirely worse, to flatter those who dishonor God. How often are we overwhelmed with frustration when someone speaks against us while being entirely unmoved by those who would speak evil of God? How often do we refuse to partner with those who would do us harm while partnering in the schemes of those who are overtly hostile to God? Oh, Grace, may we, may God grant us a right view of his glory and everything else in light of that. I'm going to give you something real practical here before I close. It's wrong to look upon the rich with favor, especially when their wealth leads them to blaspheme God. Without much thought, I imagine many of us can think of many ways we might be tempted here. Be careful where you spend your money, which bands you promote, who shows up on your T-shirts, what athletes you cheer for, what intellectuals you buy books from and download podcasts from, be careful that you are not flattering blasphemers because they offer you something you desire in your flesh. James's command and reasoning in this and, all, and in all the rest are as relevant today as they were when he first wrote his letter. So here's my conclusion. James wanted to love his readers well, and he wanted to love them well by helping them love one another well. And loving one another well in their specific circumstances meant refusing to show partiality, either to the rich or to the poor. And the reasons for loving in that way are because it is part of what it means to hold the faith in Jesus Christ. Because the desire to do so comes only from evil thoughts. Because God does not show partiality. Because it is dishonorable to lowly people. Because it makes no sense. And because by doing so, we participate in blaspheming God. So may God, may, may, may we as a church join God in loving the lowly and esteeming those who are rich in faith. May we do so as an expression of the gospel and in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory.